welcome to Practical Access. I'm Lisa Deeker. And I'm Rebecca Hines. And Lisa, I know you're excited to introduce today's guest. Yes, so we have today with us our fabulous director of the School of Teacher Education and uh, Physics science guru and dear friend of both of ours, uh, Dr. Malcolm Butler. Thanks for joining us, Malcolm. Thank you for having me, ladies. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Oh, great. We're excited to have you. So we're going to start right with the core question we want you just to answer and solve right in the beginning, all right? <laughs> and it's called sure. the shortage of physics teachers. I uh, wonder if you have some thoughts about how principals... Uh, current science teachers, teacher prep programs might get us a few more of those folks and how we might do better to get a wider range of diversity and just access to physics teachers because we know it's important and you are the person who has that background. <laughs> okay, so we'll start with this is probably worthy of a workshop in and of itself, maybe <laughs> yes. even a conference. <laughs> but I, I think I think the truth of the matter is physics teaching is not much different than teaching in general. That truly physics is about changing the lives of people. And I think that's the selling point, even for students who are pursuing physics degrees. I'm using my own self as a reference point. The last thing I wanted to do was be a physics teacher. That's why I went into physics. <laughs> and yet I got turned on by working with young children in an after school program. I took an exceptional education class as a part of my graduate studies, and I got hooked on this idea of not just becoming a scientist, but growing more physicists. And so that's where the hook came for me was, I didn't even know I could be a physics teacher. I thought they just, you know, they had this factory over here and here come the physics teacher marching out of it. I didn't know I could be one. And so that's what was amazing about it is this idea of just awareness and that you really can touch lives and change their trajectory of people, that's a selling point that I think not only is good for physics, but for teaching in general. You know, Malcolm, I think that's that's a great perspective in terms of finding your passion um, and then extending it into education. So if you think about that, think about little kids for a minute. So if I'm an elementary school teacher, what, what do you think I could do to help kids start to get some early interest in physics so that when I get to high school, it doesn't feel so scary. What could I do? Yeah, Becky, that's a great point. And I think about some of the researchers and psychologists and all of these amazing people that have thought of just about that same question. It's about, in physics in particular, taking the abstract and making it concrete. And so we have all of these concepts in physics. You know, we talk about light years. How many light years are we away from the next planet? And then we go to the other extreme, we talk about an angstrom thick sample, microscopic. That's hard for some of the fathom those sizes. However, there are so many ways to make those realistic. Like when we look at these models of the solar system. So you have the sun right here, and then you map it out with Mars and the, all of the planets lined up and you get this scale of what it actually looks like. So I think the biggest challenge is taking these concepts that in physics, oh my goodness, it's so hard, I'll never understand it. And you start to apply it in real life. I mean, the two of you are sitting in chairs right now that if it wasn't for physics, you wouldn't be sitting there. <laughs> There's something called equal and opposite forces. If it wasn't for equal and opposite forces and it wasn't for that chair keeping you from going down, as soon as you move, on, move that chair away, gravity is going to pull you down to the earth. Well, you can't see the gravity, but you sure are experiencing it right now, and you're thankful for that chair providing an opposite force to gravity's acceleration. Yeah. So that for me, Becky, is the is the core at the core of the young children, 
helping them to take these things that they can't necessarily see, but give them examples of what it looks like in their everyday lives. And again, you're sitting there, you have all kinds of examples of that going on right now. Many more I could point out. I see a straw, a cup with a straw in it. There's so much science and physics going on right there. When you take up that cup and you create this vacuum, we call it sucking. There's a vacuum that causes that liquid to go from the cup to your mouth. There's lots of examples of that. I think when students see that, and I've seen it for myself, the proverbial light bulb comes on. You mean I can do that? Because I'm doing it every day. You are doing it every day. And yes, you can do it. Yeah, and I'm going to piggyback on that a little bit because I know, Malcolm, your passion and your work and your research has been to be in schools of poverty and diversity and, and the beauty and the opportunities that exist there. And I know that's in your your core DNA is to promote a, a stronger teaching force as well as a more diverse teaching force. What can we do better in society to make sure people of all backgrounds see themselves as physicists as they move up the grade levels and once they're in the field to keep them. I know UCF, I think we were, what, five years ago or something, number two in the country and we produced like four physics teachers and that was thanks to your team of six. Okay, sorry, I missed it by two. Six teachers, but keeping them is hard because corporate America wants them so badly. So what is the answer as kids move up and then once kids do become teachers to keep them in that really critical shortage area? Of all the areas, it is probably the most critical in the country. Lisa, it goes back to, I think, and again, you know, there are multiple ways to address these big, big, what I call wicked problems. I think one of the ways is to be very intentional about what we call those induction years. You know, we do all that work to recruit them from physics, if they were a physics major like me, and then we get them in the classroom, and five years later, they're gone. And sometimes they're gone because they have other more attractive offers, like Becky was saying, you know, this is their aspiration. But in many cases, sometimes we push them out. So in those induction years, it's so critical to set them up for success, to support them, to provide them the, those opportunities like we have here at UCF, where they can do research experiences for teachers, where they actually come back here during the summer. And they not only learn physics, they got to feed that side of themselves. They also come up with new strategies, new lesson plans, new curriculum materials, all of that so that when they go back to the classroom, they're eager to try out all of these new things with their students. And they're really trying to meet the needs of every single student in their class. That to me is what keeps them excited so that when all of these other opportunities come along or things that might be pushing them away, they have these other really strong examples that says, I'm making a difference. I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. And I have a supportive network that's going to help me to continue to grow and get better. And I think in some cases that get better is not a part of the equation. And I think in, again, in those induction years that zero to five, we really have to promote this idea that physics is exciting. It's a great place to be so that those six teachers that we recruited and we won a national award for stay in the classroom. And, and let me add to that, Lisa, several of those were from underrepresented groups. And they really wanted to be in the classroom for every single student in their classroom because they knew that representation matters. Two of them are, are actually females and they're still in the classroom doing amazing things with young people. So, you know, one of the things that you kind of touched on there, Malcolm, is that idea of uh, as, we, as we put professionals into the field of education, not everybody is prepared for the wide range of needs of the kids in the classroom. And, you know, you and Lisa and I, we are all so well aware that uh, you could 
be a student with a learning disability and be a master physicist. So, you know, we, we so often one of the barriers is that we may not have special educators who have that content expertise. But if I'm the special educator and I'm asked to come into your classroom to support you so that my students can have access to your content expertise, how do I come in there and support the students and work with you without feeling like an assistant? What are some meaningful things that I could do in a collaborative setting so that we can open up your room to kids of all abilities? That's an excellent question and a point to make. Becky, you know, we talk about Albert Einstein is kind of our poster child. He was identified as a student with special needs. He's the epitome of physics. I mean, everybody's got the t-shirts with right. Albert Einstein on it. Well, he was identified as a student with a special need. That's where he started his life. So I think that's critical for us to identify those places where we already have very good examples of students who had these special needs who wound up excelling in science. It goes back to a point you made too, Becky. We, gotta, we have to be able to create a space for those critical conversations. And I think that's part of the challenge in, in science and even in education. But being able to sit in a room with the high school physics teacher, the, the resource teacher who's coming in to work with English learners, the teacher who's working with students with special abilities, all of them sitting in a room and saying, what is in the best interest of the students? And dare I say, I'm going to say something that some people might find uh, I, I would say maybe provocative for me is not actually having the students being a part of the conversation. Okay. <laughs> yes. What are their needs when we have students who are in those spaces talking with them about how can we help you be successful? And then we sit down and have those conversations. So I would love to be able to give you that laundry list of ideas, Becky, but I think it starts with being able to have those kinds of critical conversations amongst those key players. And again, maybe sometimes including the student in those conversations about how can we best help this student meet their individual needs. I think the conversations have to go there. And again, I, I've, I've had some great successes. I've had some challenges, let's call them that, along the way. And many times as I reflected on those, I've been a part of the problem because I didn't make the time to have those critical conversations with my colleagues. That's great. I love it. So I'm going to ask you then to think of the younger self, since you kind of pointed back to, you know, your own conversation <laughs> with yourself. And, you know, I know uh, from talking to you, Malcolm, you have a great sister who was a special ed teacher who, who made sure you were indoctrinated <laughs> into access for people with disabilities. And, and that is a part of your DNA. But imagine you're talking to a brand new physics teacher and they're getting ready and they get their roster and they're like, uh, I've got three students with disabilities, two with second language, and I'm teaching physics. Where do you recommend they start or what's the first thing they should do as they think about their work with a range of kids giving them access? I know you said mentioned talking to kids, but are there other things that you would think they should do to the physics content or other things they should think about to kind of launch the beginning of their, of their work? Sure. And, and thank you for acknowledging my sister, because I tell you, I wouldn't be sitting in this chair if it wasn't for her and her her orientation to education and what it meant. And, you know, I've shared pictures with you of me standing in the middle of of her, her students, my dear friends, 
at the Special Olympics event. And, you know, I went because we were going to eat at a restaurant afterwards. <laughs> I couldn't com- I couldn't compete with them, but I was right there in the middle of them. I didn't know it was Special Olympics. I just knew I got a cool T-shirt and I got to hang out with my buddies. So that was my orientation early on. And it's only later in life I realized that my, my sister did a great job of celebrating differences. She truly celebrated them. So that segues to, to my response to your question. I think for a new teacher, it's so critical to make sure that a part of the process of how to help those students is to connect with others who have been working with those students. For example, Becky's question. I would not start teaching high school students physics until I talk with those students, teachers, the resource teachers that you mentioned. All of those folks should be a part of my initial thought process. And finding out what has been successful in working with those students. And then build my physics curriculum around what I know they are able to do and how to challenge them. Because part of that equation is challenging them as well. And I hope you would agree with that. And so how do we create that? I think the initial thought process is, one, who do I need? I need to go down the hall and talk with this particular teacher who is the resource teacher that works with English learners. I need to make sure I go and talk with the resource teacher who's works with students with special needs. And when I say that, I'm also talking about my potentially gifted students as well, because there may be resources that my colleagues are aware of that will also help me to be successful. I think many times, because physics is seen as this quote unquote very challenging subject, that the physics teacher tends to be seen as a person that they don't need any help. They're fine, they got the content, they're good to go. When the reality is they need they need just as much help, maybe more help, because they're not seeing their physics through the lens of those students that you just say are on my roster. How am I gonna help the student with dyslexia learn all of these physics words? Because we know physics and science are very vocabulary laden. There's a nomenclature. How am I going to help that student? Well, if I don't talk with the people with whom this student has already been working, maybe even in, imagine this, talking with the parents or the caregivers, all of those people and start my work there. They're going to get the physics. I'm going to get that. That's, that's a part of the equation. But I say we downplay that part, not downplay to the point of not addressing it, but start to focus on as a new teacher, what are these other things I can be doing to reinforce and get them to see, as I say, not covering the physics that I need to cover, uncovering it. Well, Malcolm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end my questions with a simple one uh, in line with our idea of being practical. So back to me as a special ed teacher, and maybe I'm working with elementary age students, I might be a gen ed teacher, honestly. I, I hear your passion. I want to instill that passion in students. What's a resource I can use just to get the conversation started? I don't have a physics background. What's an easy resource I could use, whether it's a book I should read, a website I could go to, where can I start? So there's some really cool ones out there, Becky. And, and I would start with FET. FET is the simulations for physics. You know, another challenge with physics sometimes is we don't have access to stuff. You know, I got to have all this cool equipment. I need an accelerometer. I need an oscilloscope. I need all this cool equipment. Well, the FET simulations are just that. They're computerized simulations. Students can go in and adjust variables and play with it. So FET is a great place. There's also something called physics for elementary teachers. It's an actual curriculum, and it's really built on this idea of hands-on, minds-on. 
So both of those components are there. So it's not just the students playing with cool stuff, you know, and sliding call, hot wheel calls down the ramp. There's that built-in minds on component that helps them to understand the science and the physics involved in the car going down the ramp. And so those are two resources that I've used in the past and I've found both of them to be very, very good at helping students from many walks of life come into physics and come to appreciate physics in a way that I could have never imagined. And so that those are resources. Of course, both of you know, we tap into those resources when it's educationally and instructionally appropriate. But those are two, Becky, that immediately come to mind. I, I have colleagues who've used them. There's lots of research. They're research-based. Lots of best practices that have been involved with those. Very focused on evidence that shows that when students use those kinds of resources, not only does their understanding of physics goes up, their appreciation for physics goes up as well. And to me, that's probably most important because you know, I would like everybody to become a physicist. You know, I know both of you kind of like science, so I could recruit both of you to be a physicist. I'm ready to go look at that site right now. <laughs> it, way cool. But the other part of the equation is whether you become a physicist or a street musician, to have that appreciation physics for physics and understand how physics applies to your life is probably even more important. So if you're on the street corner playing, playing music, there's nodes, there's amplitudes, there's frequency, there's volume. I would like to be able to talk with a, a person playing on the street about the beauty of the music and those 12 notes and how those 12 notes make up all the music and also talk about you're playing at a different tempo, there's a frequency there, there's an amplitude, you don't want to play too loud. All of that's the physics of it. And to me, that's what makes it beautiful. There's a book actually called The Jazz of Physics. And it's a book my son and I have read. It's, it's a little bit more, I would call it a coffee table book, but it speaks to that kind of question. How do you... What are some things you can do to help understand the physics of jazz and the jazz of physics? Perfect. They go hand in hand. I love it. Well, and my last question for you goes right along with that. First of all, you need a little more passion about physics. I just want to <laughs> let you know. And that's exactly why we wanted the, the privilege to talk to you. But I think your passion is just as deep for teacher ed. And so I'm going to ask you a really open-ended question. You can answer any way you'd like. But what would be your one wish for teacher education in the future? This, you're absolutely right, Lisa and Becky. I love physics. I think I love teaching more and I love learning most. I love physics. I love teaching. I, I, I just love learning even more. And I think that's the, that's the thing I would want for teacher education, for teaching, is that at some point in our lives, in my life, that we have not just a high quality competent teacher in every classroom. We also have a caring teacher in every classroom. And I know we may not accomplish that in my lifetime. Who knows if we ever, but that's why I push myself so hard. That's why I push my colleagues so hard is because I truly believe that every single child deserves to have a phenomenal teacher every single year. Not 13 years of education and you get one great teacher. I think that should happen for every single child every single year in every single classroom. And I think it's doable. I think being at a university, we're at the universe of ideas. And I think that's the hard work. And that's the hard work. We do all kinds of amazing things. And I'm privileged to work with two people right here who do that kind of work, amazing things. And I know your passion is very similar. We want every single child to experience what great teaching and great learning looks like. 
And that's what I would want for our school of teacher education is to keep pushing ourselves many times in spite of what we might be hearing in the news, what might be happening to us, that at our core, we really do want our children, as I refer to them, my babies, to experience what good teaching and good learning looks like every time they walk on a school campus. My son, is seven, he was seven years old in second grade. He said, school should be a good place to be for the custodians, for the cafeteria workers, for the front office folks, for everybody on that campus. He said it should be a good place to be. And I think at the core, that's what I would want for everybody. It, the school doesn't have to have a fancy name. It doesn't have to win, you know, all of these great awards. I, I believe in all of them. But at the core, a school should be a good place to be. And that's what I would hope for, hope for teacher education and what the work we're doing. I know we're actually, actually, we're actually pushing the envelope. And I think the work we're doing is someday is going to help us to have that kind of that kind of accomplishment in place that we are going to have schools being good places to be even more so than what we have today. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Malcolm. We appreciate you as a friend and a colleague and uh, for joining and sharing with us your passion for physics on practical access. If you have questions, folks, you can send them to our Facebook page at, pra at Practical Access or send us a tweet at Access Practical. Thank you. Thanks, Malcolm. Thank you. Take care.